0: You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 86. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker.
1: we're having broccoli over 85 million people in the united states alone are living with prediabetes and don't even know it
0: happy sunday veggie lovers and welcome back to veggie doctor radio i have an excellent episode for you this sunday the first of two episodes focusing on diabetes. Today, I have Cyrus Kambada from Mastering Diabetes here to talk to us about diabetes, about insulin resistance, what causes insulin resistance, what is it, what decreases insulin resistance or improves insulin sensitivity, what kind of foods can we eat to change our insulin or improve our insulin sensitivity, and lots, lots, lots more. In fact, this episode is a little bit longer. I hope that you will stick with it because all of it is wonderful. So it's very, very good stuff. Before we get into that, I wanna remind you about my newsletter. If you are interested in being the first to hear about each episode each week, also, any special events, travel, any talks I'm going to be giving, summits I'm going to be part of, which there's one coming up soon that I know is going to be very exciting for many people, then please subscribe to my newsletter. There's two ways you can do it. You can text the word Fiber, F-I-B-E-R, to the number 66866. Just put the word and text it to that number, six six eight. 66 six, and then it'll lead you with instructions on how to sign up or you can go to my website dryami.com forward slash sign up to sign up for my newsletter and the other thing is I want to thank you I want to thank you for subscribing for rating and for reviewing my podcast I have a great review from Josh Christ, five stars titled Empowering Insightful Josh says, whether you're already deep into your journey of authentic health and wellness, or just getting started organizing your plant-based lifestyle, this is a must-listen podcast for you. Dr. Yami does an incredible job leading conversations that cover the entire range of mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical challenges we all face, learning to navigate the transition to plant-based living, while rebuilding our health, vitality, and family in the process. Highly recommend listening and subscribing. Thank you so much for that warm review. And I can tell that you are a person that is empowered and you take your life, your joy, your well-being into your own hands. Thank you so much for the review, for spreading the joy, reaching out to other people in your life. I appreciate that so much. So the rest of you, if you have a moment if you haven't already, please rate, review, subscribe, share. In addition, I to remind you that I did write a book. I think it's doing pretty well so far. People are really liking it. So thank you. All of you have already purchased it, read it. It is called A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. And you can find it on all the major online booksellers. If you have purchased and read it, if you could please take a little moment to rate it and review it on Amazon, I would appreciate it so much. And I'm trying to read all of the reviews that come up. I'll be alternating between my book and the podcast and uh, sharing all the goodness, all the great feedback you guys are giving me. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for being listeners of Veggie Doctor Radio. Let me talk about my guest today. So Cyrus Kambada is a PhD and he and Robbie Barbero, who has a Master of Public Health, are the co-founders of a program called Mastering Diabetes. So this is a coaching program that teaches people how to reverse insulin resistance via a low-fat, plant-based, whole-food diet. Cyrus has been living with type one diabetes since 2002 and has an undergraduate degree from Stanford University and a PhD in nutritional biochemistry from UC Berkeley. Robbie, who was unable to be in the interview today, he was diagnosed with type one diabetes in 2000 and has been living a plant-based lifestyle since 2006. He worked at Forks Over Knives for six years and earned a Master's of Public Health in 2019. So these guys founded this program, Mastering Diabetes. They are helping so many people. But what I really want you to know is that they have a book also titled Mastering Diabetes. It is fabulous. It is fabulous. It's gonna be such a great resource for so many people. What I love about this book is that it's well-organized, it's easy to read, it's got lots of examples and stories, and it's very comprehensive. They really dig into all the different questions or concerns you might have when you're starting to think about using their approach, which we're gonna talk more about in this episode. But I really encourage you, if you've been diagnosed with prediabetes, you have a family history of diabetes, you have family members that have diabetes, I really encourage you to grab this book, look into this program, learn more about it. And this is for people with any type of diabetes because there's more than one type of diabetes which we're gonna talk all about in the show, so don't worry. We're gonna cover all of this stuff but I I just want you to think about please ordering this book. We are releasing this episode on the week that Mastering Diabetes releases. So you may, if you hear it, it may still be in the pre-order stage, but you will soon be getting that copy, okay? I promise, you're gonna be getting it quick, especially if you do Amazon Prime. We'll come to you very quickly. You'll be able to open that book and get started. But until then, you can go to masteringdiabetes.org and find lots and lots of information. So I know you're gonna love this episode. Let's get started, because it's really long. Here is myself, and Cyrus discussing diabetes I hope you guys have a fantastic day and a fantastic week I will check you guys again next week where we're gonna have another episode with an endocrinologist a physician and we're gonna be discussing a lot of the similar things from her perspective all right guys here's me and Cyrus Please don't you still my bowl, just feel it. when you grill it we gonna see. when it's time i got something you should try Cyrus, it is such a pleasure to have you on Veggie Doctor Radio today. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Dr. Yami. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here.
0: Well, I just finished reading the book that you wrote with Robbie, and that book is fantastic. What a wonderful resource. I can't wait till it comes out in Spanish. Do you guys plan on having a Spanish version? Have you heard?
1: So we would love to have a Spanish version because, you know, I live in Costa Rica, you're from Panama and, you know, we're both well aware that the Western uh, lifestyle has uh, sort of like made its way into Mexico and Central America and South America. And so there's a lot of people in Spanish speaking countries who could benefit from this information. The, we would love to get it translated. And if the book does well here in the United States first, then we can, you know, gain and earn the rights to be able to publish it in different languages. And I'm I'm pretty confident that'll happen
0: it'll do great it's it's a great resource and i need you guys to or the publisher so whoever's listening yeah. it needs to be translated because my family doesn't believe me so i need other right. people right. i need other people to back me up on this uh, absolutely let's just launch in because we have a lot to talk about and i really want to make this a really information packed episode for my listeners mm-hmm. let's start from the beginning
1: mm-hmm.
0: what is diabetes
1: so f- that is a phenomenal question. We could probably spend the entire podcast talking about just that topic, right? So diabetes is a, is a collection of symptoms that is often diagnosed and first discovered when your blood glucose goes high, okay? Now, the reason I say that is because diabetes is much more than just monitoring your blood glucose, or what's traditionally referred to as your blood sugar. I don't like to use the word sugar. It's the wrong word. So I'm going to continue to use the word blood glucose from here on out. But um, the, 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 the nuances of diabetes is that there's many different forms of diabetes. Okay, So there's type 1 diabetes, which is what I am living with, and my, my partner, Robbie, who also is living with type 1 diabetes, both of us were diagnosed in the early 2000s. And, um, we type one diabetes is an autoimmune version of diabetes. So what that means is that your own immune system has for any number of reasons decided to attack and kill the insulin producing cells in our pancreases. And as a result of that, we no longer manufacture and secrete insulin. So because of that, we now have to inject insulin using a syringe or an insulin pump or a pen in order to control our blood glucose properly so that's type 1 diabetes. Type 1.5 diabetes is is another autoimmune version of diabetes, but it is an autoimmune version of diabetes that affects adults over the age of 30. So you can think about it as though it's uh, it's type 1 diabetes that affects adults, and it's actually a slower-progressing version of type 1 diabetes that um, can lead to full insulin dependence, as in Robbie and my specific examples, but doesn't always result in that. So it's sort of like a weaker autoimmune progression that occurs in individuals over 30 years of age. Uh, Then we have prediabetes and type two diabetes, okay? Now, prediabetes is a condition, you think of it as like a warning sign. So if you're diagnosed with prediabetes, that basically means, hey, you're on track to develop type two diabetes. Maybe it's time to change your lifestyle right now so that you can actually become non-diabetic and then never have to venture into type two diabetes territory, okay? So prediabetes is basically like, it's a a warning sign, it's a precondition that then can progress into type two diabetes. And both prediabetes and type two diabetes are actually caused by your lifestyle. So there's a number of things that contribute to your risk for developing prediabetes and type two diabetes, including number one, a sedentary lifestyle. If you don't move your body, if you're not exercising frequently, that can certainly increase your risk for type 2 diabetes and pre-diabetes. Number two, if you eat a diet that is has contains a significant amount of refined foods, whether those refined foods are things like flours and sugars and um, you know refined carbohydrate-rich foods, as examples are like pastas, breads, cereals, um, highly refined grains, um, the consumption of those packaged and processed foods can increase your risk for the development of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, no question. Uh, In addition to that, um, eating a diet that is high in fat, specifically high in saturated fat, can set the stage for a condition known as insulin resistance. So if you're eating a diet that's high in fat, you're eating refined and packaged foods, if you live a sedentary lifestyle, any combination thereof, you develop this thing called insulin resistance. And then insulin resistance progresses to prediabetes. Insulin resistance then progresses from prediabetes into type two diabetes. And at the basis, prediabetes and type two diabetes are, are caused by this thing called insulin resistance. And we'll get into way more detail about what that actually is. And then finally, the last version of diabetes that exists is, um, is called gestational diabetes. Gestational diabetes affects women who are pregnant and it's think, thought of as being like a temporary state of, uh, of diabetes that usually surfaces somewhere around 10 weeks of pregnancy and lasts while the mother is pregnant and then most often disappears as soon as the mother gives birth. What's interesting about gestational diabetes is that even though it's considered temporary and a woman might develop it and then get rid of it, if you have gestational diabetes, number one, it is an indicator that you are insulin resistant. But number two, the recurrence rate of gestational diabetes turning into type two diabetes at some point in the future is astronomically high. It used to be something like 10 to 20%, but now research is showing that something like 70% of women who experience gestational diabetes during pregnancy are at an increased risk for developing type two diabetes down the road.
0: Wow. That's incredible. I hadn't heard those numbers. Yeah. So really what's at that foundation of this is insulin, right? For those that are type one diabetic or type... 1.5 diabetic, you are not making insulin. You're either not making it at all or your insulin production has reduced or is decreasing.
1: Correct.
0: For those with type 2 diabetes and gestational diabetes, the problem is insulin resistance. So it can be a little confusing because those people with type 2 diabetes may actually be pumping out extra insulin,
1: lots of insulin.
0: But then there's this thing that you keep talking about, which is insulin resistance, which Mm -hmm. is also what happens in pre-diabetics whose blood sugars, their blood glucose may not yet be to the point where they can be diagnosed with diabetes. There's lots of us walking around with this, many, many millions of people. So talk a little bit more about insulin resistance. Why, Why should we care about this fancy terminology? What does it mean?
1: Yeah, that is a phenomenal question. So I think what you're getting to is the fact that diabetes can be quite complex. And there's a lot of like very subtle nuanced details that are very important to pay attention to. Okay. So let's go back to what you just described at the beginning. When you live with type one or type 1.5 diabetes, that is considered insulin deficiency. Okay. So that's, again, it's an autoimmune attack of your pancreas or of the beta cells in your pancreas, which leads to a either complete inability to secrete insulin or a partial inability to secrete insulin. So that is, a, that is literally an insulin production problem. In the case of prediabetes and type two diabetes, um, it is not necessarily an insulin production problem. It's actually an insulin utilization problem. It's an insulin use issue. So what do I mean by that? Okay, so let's say you go to the doctor. Let's just walk through a couple of examples here. Let's say you go to the doctor And you take a routine blood test for an annual uh, physical, and your doctor measures one particular thing inside of your blood called an A1C, a hemoglobin A1C. Okay, your hemoglobin A1C is basically just a marker of what your blood glucose has been doing for approximately three, sometimes four months. Okay, so the A1C value is um, an indicator that it tells you and your doctor whether your blood glucose is normal or elevated or quite high. So if you get an A1C value and it comes back at a number of 5.7 or less, or I should say 5.6 or less, then what that means is that you're non-diabetic and everything's fine, that your glucose metabolism is functioning exactly the way it's supposed to be, and there's really no cause for concern. But if instead you go to the doctor and you get an A1C value that's between 5.7 and 6.4 what that means is that now you're living with this thing called pre-diabetes, okay? So in the pre-diabetes state, what is actually happening is that your liver and muscle in particular, these are the two two incredibly important tissues inside of your body that get most affected that you know, when they accumulate damage, it causes this thing called diabetes, right? So if your A1C value is between 5.7 and 6.4, what that generally indicates is that your liver and muscle have become resistant to the insulin that you are manufacturing, okay? So your pancreas is manufacturing insulin, and the insulin's job is to knock on the door of the liver, knock on the door of the pancreas and say, hey, guys, knock, knock. I got this glucose inside of the blood. Would you like to take it up? And if the liver and muscle were insulin-sensitive and non-diabetic and in a you know, perfectly normal functioning state, both the liver and muscle would say, okay, cool, sounds good and they would open doors, and they would allow glucose to come inside of the tissue so that it could be utilized for energy. In the insulin-resistant state, when insulin knocks on the door, says, hey, liver, knock, knock, hey, muscle, knock, knock, I got this glucose, do you wanna take it up? Both of those tissues respond by saying, you know what, I can't really take that glucose up right now. I'm not interested, go away. And so as a result of that, the glucose that's inside of your blood gets trapped. It's literally, there's a traffic jam of glucose inside of your blood, The glucose cannot get outside of your blood very easily. And as a result of that, your blood glucose begins creeping up over time. And as your blood glucose begins creeping up, your A1C value begins creeping up. So this is sort of an indicator that something is wrong with your liver and something is wrong with your muscle. And now it's time to sort of make some changes. So like you were saying earlier, in this situation, oftentimes people who are living with prediabetes, they find that their a1c level starts to creep up a little bit and what it forces your pancreas to have to do is work just a little bit harder okay so what that means is that when insulin knocks on the door and says hey knock knock i got this glucose you want to take it up if the liver and muscle respond by saying no i can't really take this stuff up right now i have other things to do and that traps glucose inside of your blood the pancreas can basically respond by saying hey you know what let's make more insulin so it does so instead of making, call it five units for a meal, your liver, your, your pancreas makes seven units for that meal. And that extra two units then allows the glucose to get inside of your blood and keep your blood glucose normal, fantastic. Tomorrow, the same situation happens. Thursday, the same situation happens. The next Sunday, it happens. Two months from now, six months from now, a year from now, this problem keeps happening over and over and over and over again. Before you know it, the beta cells inside of your pancreas are working so hard to manufacture excess insulin at every single meal that over the course of time, those beta cells actually can get burned out. So prediabetes is classic, classic characterization is you have a slightly elevated blood glucose, but if you actually tested how much insulin was present in your blood, you would find that you're actually having high insulin levels, meaning that your pancreas is working in overdrive to do everything it can possibly do to keep your blood glucose control, okay? now. Go ahead.
0: No, I was just going to say, because our bodies really want to be in a state of equilibrium. So it does whatever it can to try to regulate that blood glucose. So essentially what you're saying is that pancreas is okay. Well, I'm just going to knock harder. I'm just going to knock louder to try Mm -hmm. to get the attention of the liver and the muscle cells. And it works for a while, right? It's working. Blood sugar doesn't seem to be increasing rapidly. It seems to be working, but then Mm -hmm. you say after, Over time, after a while, it's not working as well anymore.
1: That's exactly right. So a a simple analogy to think about this would be like, imagine you're driving a car and um, you notice that there's a small hole inside of your oil pan. And as a result of that, the amount of engine oil that you put into your engine starts to go down pretty quickly. So you put in engine oil today and then a week later, you're like, oh, my oil's low. I got to go put more oil in. So you put more oil in and then a week later it goes low. It goes low again. And you have to keep refilling it in that state. That's sort of like the pre-diabetes state, right? There's a problem. And the problem is that there's a little hole in your oil tank and you can solve that problem by literally just putting more oil, more oil, more oil, more oil, more oil, and doing it frequently in order to keep your engine functioning properly. If that hole gets bigger as it could over the course of time, then at a certain point, you're gonna be like, you know what, I can't, I literally cannot keep putting oil into my car every week or maybe every day in order to prevent my car from becoming oil deficient. So as a result of that, now what you have to do is say, you know what, let me fix the problem, and then you fix the plug, and when you fix the plug, all of a sudden now you can go into the non-diabetic state or the, you know, the pro- you don't have to worry about this oil problem anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's say, You're in the pre-diabetic state. Again, slightly elevated blood glucose. Your A1C is now beginning to show signs of it because you're between 5.7 and 6.4, and your insulin levels are definitely high, detectable, measurable, high, okay? Now, suppose you don't make any changes to your lifestyle and you continue doing exactly what you've been doing. You may live a sedentary lifestyle. You may continue to eat packaged and processed foods. You may continue to eat a high-fat and or low-carbohydrate diet. You continue that for another six months, another year, and then all of a sudden, you go back to your doctor, and they test your A1C value again, and now your A1C value is a 7.0. What that means is that you are now in the type 2 diabetes category, okay? So an A1C greater than 6.5% means that you have type 2 diabetes. So under the hood, what that means is that uh, this insulin resistance, which has now affected your liver and, and uh, muscles, it has grown over the course of time. So your pancreas is continuing to secrete insulin, and it's like, okay, I can make insulin, I can make insulin, I can make insulin, and I can keep the blood glucose control. But after a certain point, the beta cells inside of your pancreas, they, they just can't continue to crank out excess insulin. Okay, when I say excess insulin, what I mean is that uh, there, are, there are some studies that actually show that people in the pre-diabetes state can secrete two, three, four, or even five times as much insulin as they would normally need if they were non-diabetic. Okay, so we're not talking about just like a 20 or 30% increase in insulin production. We're talking about 200 to 500% increase in insulin production. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work for a very small population of cells that are very, very, very prized. Mm -hmm. So when you force that very small population of cells in your pancreas that have no other backup mechanism in your entire body, and you force them to work for a, a long period of time, eventually they're going to they're going to commit suicide and they're going to say you know what guys hey listen i've been trying to work for you i've been doing everything i can uh, i with all due respect i'm going to kill myself and they do and then they're gone once they're gone there's no there's no recovering them. okay so your beta cell population started at 100% of normal it then increased to 200% excuse me your insulin production started at 100% of normal then it went to 200 then it went to 300 then it went to 400% of normal now at a certain point, a lot of these cells commit suicide. Now, your production goes doesn't go to zero, it goes to something like 60% or maybe 50%, okay? So you're you're now compromised in the amount of insulin that you can produce, but you still are producing some insulin. So in this state, you now have a choice, and the choice is simple. Modify lifestyle such that the 60% of insulin that I still am secreting is enough mm-hmm. if i can make that 60 percent do a lot of work for me then i can actually live in this state for the rest of my life option number two go get medication don't change lifestyle and use oral medication and or insulin to compensate for the insulin that you're no longer producing So this is type two diabetes and this is the situation that 90 plus percent of the diabetes population currently lives in over 30 million Americans are living in this situation and over 85 million people in the United States alone are living with pre-diabetes and don't even know it.
0: That that's just astronomical. It's crazy. Well, say we went with choice one and we all know what's the typical route that most physicians and a lot of well-meaning providers recommend, Mm -hmm. which is, it just makes sense, right? It's intuitive that if the glucose in your blood, the sugar in your blood goes up Mm -hmm. because you're not being very sensitive to insulin, your insulin can't tell your cells what to do, that you should just eat less. Let's decrease our intake of sugar Decrease our intake of carbohydrates because we all know that carbohydrates are evil, right?
1: Correct. But so really, carbohydrates
0: <laughs> are the enemy. So, mm-hmm. the only way to combat this problem is to eat a low carb diet, maybe moderate protein, maybe high fat, maybe moderate fat, because mm-hmm. then you have to get your calories elsewhere if you're not getting in from carbs. That's right. So, is that the way to go with this insulin resistance <clears throat> problem?
1: Absolutely not. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because in the world of diabetes, if 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 you were to walk around town and you were to just mention the word, you just say the word diabetes to people and you ask them, what's the first word that comes to your head? You say the word diabetes, people say sugar, diabetes, carbs, diabetes, carbohydrate, diabetes, sugar, sugar, sugar. You hear this over and over and over and over again because as a society, we have been told over the course of time that diabetes equals sugar excess, diabetes equals carbohydrate excess and as a result of that you know people believe that and medical professionals believe that to be true okay here's the problem it's not a true statement and i know this may sound radical and totally counterintuitive but the answer is it's not a true statement and and i'll tell you exactly why okay um, let's start out by talking about what carbohydrates really are okay carbohydrates are a class of molecule okay it's a, it's a type of nutrient that you get from eating many plant-based foods. Okay, it's found mainly in the plant-based world. It's found very in very small amounts in the animal-based world. So carbohydrates in the natural world show up in foods like fruits, in starchy vegetables, in whole grains, and in beans, lentils, and peas. That's where they're found. Okay, So this is a type of energy that your body and every human body has the ability to metabolize for energy. When you eat carbohydrates, a lot of that carbohydrate energy is then broken down by enzymes in your digestive system into this thing called glucose. And glucose is a fuel, okay? Glucose is a fuel that your liver can take up, that your muscle can take up, that your brain can take up, your pancreas can take up, your kidneys can take up, your um, your prostate gland can take up, okay? Any tissue in your body is capable of utilizing glucose as a fuel and it's actually from a biological perspective, human beings and mammals have been designed to operate off of glucose as a fuel. Now, when you eat carbohydrate rich foods, those carbohydrate rich foods are then broken down into glucose and that glucose has an opportunity to be taken up into any tissue in your body, namely your muscle, namely your liver. The problem though is that if you're insulin resistant to begin with, and those tissues don't want to take it up, then what that means is that every time you eat a carbohydrate-rich food, you see your blood glucose go up. It's a very simple argument, right? So you might turn to me and say, hey, Cyrus, look, I've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Now, check this out. If I go eat a banana right now, and I eat that banana, I check my blood glucose two hours later, my blood glucose is high. I look at my blood glucose meter, it's now at 180, okay? So what does that mean? Does that That means that the banana is bad for me. Okay. Every time I eat a bowl of quinoa or have some red beans, my blood glucose goes high. You know what that means? That means that quinoa is bad for me. That means that red beans are bad for me. That means that anything that's carbohydrate rich is bad for me because when I do, my glucose goes high. And the answer is true and not true at the same time. In order to really understand what is happening, what we have to do is ask a simple question. Why is your glucose high? Is it because bananas are bad for you? Because chemo is bad for you? Or is it because your muscles and liver are not fully capable of utilizing the carbohydrates in those foods for energy? And what ends up happening is that you see that there's a a whole series of things that happened before you ate that banana in the first place that set the stage for insulin resistance. So in reality, here's what's happening. Let's say that you're eating a traditional low-carbohydrate diet. Traditional low-carbohydrate diet means that you're minimizing fruit and starchy vegetables and whole grains and uh, legumes. And you're eating more chicken, more fish, more red meat, more white meat, more eggs, more bacon, okay? You might be eating things like peanut butter. You might have uh, coconut meat. You might have olive oil. You might have nuts, seeds, olives, you name it, okay? So these are all sort of like more protein-rich, more fat-rich foods that either come from the plant-based world or come from the animal-based world. By eating those foods, you're eating more fat, and more protein, and you're reducing your total carbohydrate intake naturally. So if you do that over the course of time, what ends up happening is that the, the fatty acid molecules inside of those foods that are originally locked up as what's called triglyceride, that triglyceride is then broken down by your digestive system. And those fatty acid molecules are then circulated to tissues all throughout your body. Some of those fatty acids get inside of your adipose tissue your fat tissue exactly where they're supposed to be. And that's a good thing. Some of those fatty acids make them to your, make their way into your liver. Some of those fatty acids make their way into your muscle. Now, your liver and muscle have a, an ability to store small amounts of fatty acids, very small amounts. But when you overload those tissues with too much fatty acids over the course of time, then your liver begins to accumulate excess fatty acids. Your muscle begins to accumulate excess fatty acids. And as a result of that, now your liver and muscle have accumulated a sufficient amount and they they are now being compromised as a result of that. So what they do is they're, they're literally just looking for a way to try and block more stuff, more energy from coming inside of those two tissues. Unfortunately, they can't really block fatty acids from coming inside of them because there aren't very good cellular mechanisms to block those fatty acids from coming in. But what they can do is they can block insulin from functioning well. Because insulin is a master escort, a master signal that allows glucose to come into the tissue. So, what, what cells in your liver and muscle are really doing is they're saying, you know what? If I could block those fatty acids from coming in, I would do that in a heartbeat. But I can't do that right now. It's not, it's not, it's not easy for me to do that. But what I can do is I can tell insulin to go away. So, they, they become, they initiate this thing called insulin resistance. Meaning that when insulin knocks on the door, the next time you eat a banana, and insulin says, hey, knock, knock, I got this glucose, do you wanna take it up? The tissues respond by saying, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, I initiated insulin resistance, I'm not gonna talk to you, I'm not gonna listen to you. And as a result of that, only small amounts of glucose can actually come inside of those cells. The rest of the glucose is trapped and it's sitting inside of your blood and it can't go anywhere, right? So in reality, what ends up happening is that you ate a diet that was sufficiently high in fat over the course of time that set the stage for insulin resistance, and then secondarily, you tried to eat carbohydrate-rich food in the insulin-resistant state. And by doing that, you noticed your blood glucose went high. So again, is it the banana's fault? No. Is it the red bean's fault? No. It's everything that came before the banana and before the carbohydrate-rich food that set the stage for insulin resistance. So if you can reverse that insulin resistance and make it such that your liver and muscle are not trying to protect themselves against insulin and instead are actually accepting of insulin and able to communicate effectively with insulin, then what that means is that the next time you eat something carbohydrate rich, then boom, now all of a sudden that glucose can come inside the tissues
0: and you're safe. Yeah, and this is mind blowing for a lot of people because this yep. is not what we grew up hearing. This is not actually what's being taught in most places.
1: Correct.
0: So it's really shocking and it doesn't make much sense. But what Cyrus is trying to say is that eating a diet that's high in fat, which by the way, the standard American diet, which is 30 to 40% fat is a high fat diet.
1: hundred uh, percent.
0: Ha- you don't have to go keto to eat a high fat diet. You can just eat the standard American diet. <laughs> exactly. So, um, you know, what happens with that fat is it gets trapped inside the cells. That is why even people who appear lean—you mm-hmm. don't have to be overweight and obese to develop insulin resistance. People even that appear lean can have insulin resistance from this fat inside the cells. It gets trapped inside the cells, so you can't see it. You may not. You can't feel it. It's it's inside. But That's that exactly is what's gumming up the lock and causing that insulin resistance which then is going to give evidence to the theory that sugar is the problem, right? So we have the insulin resistance. We've been told sugar is the problem. We eat fruit, we eat complex carbs, the blood sugar goes up. And then of course that to a person is like, okay, well, yeah, that's evidence that this is actually the problem is when I eat these foods, my blood sugar goes up. I need to get even better. I need to ratchet down my carbs. And for a while, for some people that might work, right? When they go on a low carb diet, they may be able to control their blood sugars better. Mm -hmm. But really what's happening over time is that it may be worsening their insulin resistance. Is that right, Cyrus?
1: You hit it on the head. It sounds like you read the Mastering Diabetes book. Just a little. (laughs) Just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're absolutely right here, which is that... A low carbohydrate diet, I'm gonna give credit to low carbohydrate diets where credit is due. There's no question about it, okay? We talked about the fact that when you eat a low carbohydrate diet, you increase your risk for the development of insulin resistance in your liver and muscle, that is a true statement. And just like you said, the standard American diet is a high fat diet according to what we consider to be high fat, okay? Anything greater than 15% of calories coming from fat in your diet is considered a high-fat diet. Um, so yeah, standard American diet is a high-fat diet, a low-carbohydrate diet, the paleo diet, or a ketogenic diet, All these are all different versions of a high-fat diet, but all of them effectively impair insulin signaling uh, in, the, in the way that we just described. Now, uh, when you do that, your blood glucose can become very controllable. And you see this all over the place. If you go onto Instagram, or you go onto Facebook, you go anywhere on social media, and you look up the words ketogenic, or diabetes, or low carbohydrate, or very low carbohydrate, you will see pictures of people. They are, they're literally taking photographs of their blood glucose meter, or they're taking blood glucose, uh, I'm sorry, photographs of their continuous glucose monitors, and they are showing you a flat line. Look at my blood glucose. I'm eating a low carbohydrate diet, and my blood glucose is between eighty-three and ninety-four all day long, every day, right? And my hat goes off to them because getting a blood glucose control that's that solid is takes a lot of work. It really does, and, and I commend people for doing this. The problem, the problem is that number one, you can control your blood glucose very well, but if your entire objective in eating, a, any, any. If your entire objective in whatever you're eating is only focused on your blood glucose values and you're not paying attention to the bigger picture, you could be eating yourself into uh, an increased risk for chronic disease. And that's what happens in the low carbohydrate world. So people pay attention to their blood glucose, which is a good thing, but they're not necessarily also paying attention to other markers of their health which could be going in the wrong direction, okay? What studies show, in the world of uh, ketogenic diets, there's many papers that actually document the differences between a ketogenic diet and a low-fat diet, okay? And they try and determine, well, which one of these is better? And which one of them is more effective? And what ends up, what people see over and over and over again is that in the short term, in the first six months, a ketogenic diet is more effective at helping people lose weight and control their blood glucose. Both of those, the ketogenic diet wins on both of those front in the first two, in the first six months but after a year, the ketogenic diet increases LDL cholesterol levels. And that's not a good thing because the more your LDL cholesterol level goes up, the higher your risk for development of heart disease. Okay. Number two, total cholesterol level also tends to go up on a ketogenic diet. Number three, weight loss becomes equivalent between the two approaches. And number four, the A1C value, which tended to fall very quickly on a ketogenic diet in the first six months, now begins to come right back up and there's no difference at one year and there's no difference at two years. Okay, So even though a ketogenic diet or even though a low carbohydrate diet may flatline your blood glucose in the short term, what I'm asking you to do is pay attention to what could happen to you in the long term. And there's plenty of evidence in the scientific research that now shows that people who lower their carbohydrate intake are at an increased risk for cardiovascular disease and cancer And this thing called all cause mortality, which is premature death from any cause. So yes, if you're sort of just, if the only thing that you care about in this world is controlling your blood glucose, then a low carbohydrate diet is going to get you there and you're going to love the results you see. But What I'm asking you to do is pay attention to what's going to happen to your heart. What's going to happen to your brain? What's going to happen to your eyes? What's going to happen to your nerves over the course of time? How about your liver? How about your kidneys? How about your pancreas? If you're paying attention to all of those tissues at the same time, then eating a plant-based diet that is rich in carbohydrate energy and low in fat is actually a much more powerful solution.
0: Okay. so One of the things I wanted to point out too is that for the people that do a low-carb diet, they may actually induce worsening insulin resistance. They may not know that though because they're keeping their carbs really low, so for those that quote, fall off the wagon mm-hmm. of the low-carb lifestyle, kinogenic ketogenic lifestyle, mm-hmm. they may actually have a worsening of their blood sugar than before they went on that. Correct. So that's one of those things that um, is very interesting to know too. And the other thing I want to point out for my mm-hmm. listeners is mm-hmm. that you can develop insulin resistance along with insulin deficiency. So you could have a type 1 diabetic who on top of not making any insulin develops insulin resistance. So then they have to start injecting more and more insulin in order to get the same results as before. So there's lots of reasons why we may want to reverse this insulin resistance or become more insulin sensitive. So what you're saying is there's a different way. There's another way that we can approach this, that we can reverse insulin resistance or induce insulin sensitivity, and that is?
1: Yes, I love I love the, the word you just used, induce insulin sensitivity, because that's really what you're doing. The way that you induce insulin sensitivity, I'm gonna steal that term by the way, <laughs> <laughs> is by eating a diet that is number one, low in fat, number two, plant-based, and number three, made from whole foods, or made up of whole foods, okay? So how did I come to that conclusion? How, how did all of a sudden, out of, out of the blue, I just start talking about low-fat, plant-based whole foods, right? Let's go back to the original problem that, that we described. Insulin resistance is a development of, it began when you were eating a diet that was relatively high in fat, and as a result of eating a diet that was high in fat for breakfast and lunch and dinner over the course of time, your, your liver and, and muscle tissue ended up accumulating excess fatty acids. So their lipid content grew and they, they accumulated an excess quantity of fatty acid energy inside of both of them. And that's what set the stage for insulin resistance so that those tissues could basically stop paying attention to insulin and, and protect themselves against more energy influx. So if you transition to a diet that is low in fat, that is plant-based and that is made up of whole foods, what ends up happening is that you, you reduce the total amount of fatty acids that are coming in through your mouth. And as a result of that, the amount of fatty acids that are present in your blood goes down, which means the amount of fatty acids that are knocking on the door of tissues to get inside of them goes down. So for the first time in a long time, cells in your liver, cells in your muscle are able to relax and they're able to say, oh, wow, look, there isn't that much fatty acid energy coming in anymore. That's a good thing. First of all, let me burn a lot of the stuff that I've accumulated over time and send it to the mitochondria so that I can get some actual energy out of this stuff. That would be helpful. And then number two, let me relax this thing that I created called insulin resistance because as that lipid droplet gets smaller and as the content of fatty acids inside of those two tissues gets smaller and smaller and smaller, now those cells don't have to mount and uh, and. A defense against insulin. When everyone is on the same page,
0: getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com
1: slash podcast. Easier said, done. And they can basically say, okay, you know what? The next time insulin knocks on the door and allows glucose and tells me that glucose is available in the blood, I can now take it up because this fatty acid lipid droplet inside of the cell is now at at a normal size. It's at a physiologically relevant size. And here we go. Insulin tell me when there's glucose because I want to use that glucose. I want to store some of it and I want to burn some of it. So a low fat plant-based whole food diet is a tremendous solution for reversing insulin resistance and increasing or inducing insulin sensitivity like you mentioned. And it happens at the cellular level inside of your liver and inside of your muscle. And once you start a low fat plant-based whole food diet, uh, it, it dramatically improves your blood glucose control in a short period of time. Now again, think about why that would happen. Insulin knocks on the door, says, hey, I got this carbohydrate energy, I got this glucose from the banana that Dr. Yami just ate, and it also came from some beets, and it also came from some cabbage, and it also came from some quinoa and some and some brown rice that she had for lunch. So now you're eating more carbohydrate energy, which means that there's more glucose in circulation, but because at the cellular level, your your liver and muscle are now responsive to insulin, what that means is that small amounts of insulin can allow large amounts of glucose to get inside of the tissues, and that's a good thing. So when insulin comes and knocks and says, hey, I got this glucose, both of the tissues respond by saying, cool, sounds good, give it to me, I need this stuff, I want this stuff. And they start to take it up and they start to, I envision it as they start to vacuum, they literally vacuum it out of your blood. So that that way you can go eat carbohydrate rich foods and then you check your blood glucose and your blood glucose is at a very normal level, a physiologically relevant level as opposed to seeing a high number like you had previously expected. Mm
0: -hmm. So fascinating. And like you said before, the term radical comes up in the mind because we aren't used to hearing this. I'm a food for life instructor. So one of the classes that I teach often is the diabetes class. And I had one gentleman after the first class walk out. He told me, what you're saying is opposite of what I've been taught my whole life with diabetes. He had been living with diabetes for a few decades, type two diabetic. And he couldn't, he couldn't take it. It was just too different for him that he was just not even willing. He said, I can't eat beans. You know, the food for life classes are great because almost every single class you're teaching people how to make beans and eat beans, which is all (laughs) for beans. He's like, I can't eat beans. That would make my blood sugar go high. There's no way what you're telling me is not right. So when people hear this information, it's contrary to what they've heard, especially if they've been long-term diabetics. Mm-hmm. What do you say to them? What, would, what could be a first step that they could take mm-hmm. if they're considering maybe taking this different approach to managing their diabetes?
1: Yes, exactly. I would say not only different approach to managing their diabetes, but different approach to reversing insulin resistance, which can actually reverse pre-diabetes and type two diabetes. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't say that lightly. I'm not just saying that because I want people to try this. I'm saying that because if you look into the research and you actually um, investigate what happens to people who are put on low carb, I'm sorry, low fat plant-based whole food diets, it is tremendous, it is tremendous. They actually reverse insulin resistance at the cellular level and they can get rid of this thing that they've been living with for many years called type two diabetes. It's, it's unbelievable, right? Um, So when somebody comes to me and they're resistant to this approach in the first place, um, I always ask them a simple question and I say, hey, listen, um, do you have an open mind about the idea that this could work? Yes or no. And if people say, yeah, I have an open mind. I'm, I'm willing to like, you know, entertain the idea that this could work. Then I say, okay, cool. That's the first step. If somebody turns to me and say, no, I don't have an open mind about it. I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing because carbohydrates are going to cause my glucose to go up. Then my answer to them is, okay, fine. Don't try this because if you have a closed mind and you're not willing to experiment, then, then, then I really can't help you. I really can't. Okay. So that's the first thing. If you have an open mind, then things could improve for you. Number two, if you have an open mind, are you willing to do a seven day experiment? Yes or no? And if people say, yeah, sure, I can do something for seven days, then I go, okay, great. Here's what we're going to do. In the the next seven days, I'm going to teach you how to change your breakfast. That's it. That's literally all I'm going to do. I don't want you to start moving your body all of a sudden. I don't want you to do intermittent fasting. I literally just want you to change your breakfast. And I'm going to show you how you can go from this, uh, you know, a breakfast that may contain eggs. It may contain uh, some bread. It may contain cereal. It may contain uh, sausages and we're going to change that. And I'm going to give you a fruit centric breakfast. I'm going to teach you how to eat a lot of fruits and uh, I want you to do that for seven days in a row. And I want you to report back to me what happens to your blood glucose values. And usually people are like, okay, great. Let's see what happens. So they start integrating a fruit rich breakfast and their expectation is that their blood glucose is going to go real high and it's going to go all over the place and they're going to get frustrated. And on day one, their blood glucose doesn't really go high. On day two, their blood glucose comes down. On day three, their blood glucose comes down even more. By the time they hit day seven, their blood glucose is 30 points lower, 50 points lower than it was previously. And they look at their blood glucose meter and they're like, you have got to be kidding me. How is this even possible, right? And The beauty is that they change one meal, that's it. By week two, I tell them, hey, listen, you want to do another seven-day experiment with me? And they go, okay, cool, let's do it. Week two, we change their lunch. So you keep your breakfast constant now, and then now you're going to manipulate your lunch. So you change your lunch to eating, uh, you know, something that again, low-fat plant-based whole foods. It could be, it could include more potatoes, for heaven's sakes. So it could include some squash. It could include some whole grains. Or maybe it's got some beans, lentils, or, or uh, peas in it. So we we give them a whole collection of recipes, and they, they make these recipes. They start to do that, and now their blood glucose continues to come down their fasting glucose in the morning continues to come down their post lunch middle of the afternoon glucose comes down a lot of times people say oh my gosh i have so much more energy where did this come from sometimes people say you know what i lost two pounds last week and you know what i lost another pound this week that's pretty cool right and so over the course of time making small changes as what james clear would refer to as atomic habits these small changes become bigger things down the road. So all I'm asking you to do is do a collection of seven-day experiments. And if you're willing to do a collection of seven-day experiments, I can pretty much guarantee you that if you follow the Mastering Diabetes method the way that we describe it, you're gonna see some tremendous changes in your blood glucose and you're probably gonna like what you see and it's probably gonna feel real good.
0: Wow, that's amazing. I love that approach because a lot of people are very intimidated by the all or nothing, cold turkey, jump right in, you know, some people that's their personality but a lot of people that's not their personality. What you're saying is you can take it step by step, little by little and actually start seeing results pretty quickly.
1: You can see results in incredibly quickly. I mean, people living with insulin dependent diabetes like myself or uh, you know, Robbie or other people living with, uh, you know, type one or 1.5 diabetes generally see their blood glucose come down within the first 24 hours of trying this approach. You know, they've been living with type one diabetes for 20 years and they change the way we describe using a collection of seven day experiments and their blood glucose comes down within 24 hours. It's mind blowing. And then it gets better and gets better and gets better. Uh, even people who are non-insulin dependent, see their blood glucose change within the first few days, within the first week at the most. And a lot of times people are like, they're like, you've got to be kidding me. I've been doing this low carbohydrate thing for like 10 years. And now I'm changing to a low fat plant based whole food diet and all of a sudden my glucose is more controllable and my need for insulin and or oral medications is, come down, is coming down and it's coming down
0: fast. Wow, That
1: is incredible.
0: And it, and it sounds so crazy, right? Because I can just imagine some people listening, that they're like, he said fruit for breakfast, and he mentioned potatoes for lunch. <laughs> That's ridiculous. This guy's crazy. So let's take a step back and talk about this designation that you have. I really love how you guys broke it down into the green light, yellow light, and red light foods. And The food is only one part of your mastering diabetes approach. You mentioned the intermittent fasting, which we can talk about if we get some time, but also physical activity. But really, we're starting with the food. So let's get clear in our heads. What does low-fat mean? And what are the types of foods that you are asking people to eat in their diet in order to improve their insulin sensitivity?
1: Great question. Okay, so the term low-fat means... I would like you to eat a diet that is plant-rich. Let, let, me, let me back up here for a second. I think a lot of the times in this world of nutrition, and especially in the world of diabetes, we get caught up talking about carbohydrate and fat and protein. The conversation is always about, oh, how much protein is in that, how much carbohydrates in that, how, what's, how much fat is in that, right? And I think that it is necessary in the world of diabetes but it is also dangerous in the world of diabetes because when you only are focusing on carbohydrate, fat, and protein, you tend to miss the bigger picture of this thing called food, okay? You and I don't eat carbohydrate and fat and protein. We eat food. You eat an apple, you eat a steak, you eat some crackers, right? That is food. And so really what I wanna educate people about is we're using the terms carbohydrate and fat and protein to describe the sort of, you know, the inner workings of these foods, but in reality, when it comes down to it, what I want you to do is eat plant-rich food, a whole bunch of plant-rich food. And by doing so, you're going to receive tremendous benefits. Okay? So let's go back to the nitty-gritty details. Um, the, I, would, I would like you to, uh, what we recommend is eating a diet that contains a minimum of about 70% carbohydrate and then about 15% fat and a 15% protein. Okay, So 70-15-15, maybe towards 80-10-10, somewhere in that range high carbohydrate, low in fat, low in protein. Now, the way that you would accomplish that is by eating green light foods like you suggested. So green light foods is a, is a, is a category given to, um, number one, fruits of all shapes and all sizes. Literally, there is not a single fruit that I can think of that does not fall in this category. Fruit, uh, starchy vegetables, and these are vegetables that grow predominantly in the ground. They are things like potatoes or yams or squash, we even put corn into this category because corn tends to be starch-rich, okay? And then we also have legumes, like beans, lentils, or peas. And then we also have whole grains. Whole grains are grains that are minimally processed. Brown rice, quinoa, millet, farro, sorghum. They have, they have some funky names. And they're available in your grocery store and they're actually very, uh, they're, they're not that expensive, okay? So those are the four main categories of green light foods. In addition to that, we also have things like mushrooms, and non-starchy vegetables like potato. I'm sorry, tomatoes and cucumbers and, and cauliflower and broccoli and we also have green uh, green leafy vegetables. Any of the leaves you can think of: lettuce, arugula, cabbage, um, collard greens. You name it. Okay, all those are green light foods, which means just go ahead. Like literally, I'm not going to put any limitations on how much you eat or or uh, you know what combinations you combine together. When I say that, I don't want you to overeat, right? I don't want to say, okay, eat these green light foods, but you know, eat it to a point where you're overstuffing yourself. That's not the point. The point is you can eat it without counting how many carbohydrates or calories or you know portion sizes you're eating. Okay. Number two, yellow light foods include foods that tend to be a little bit more fat-rich, okay? That generally come from the plant-based world. Number one, nuts and seeds. Number two, avocados. Number three, coconuts, number four, olives. Okay. Those are, again, plant rich foods for sure. um, But they just tend to be slightly higher in their fat content. And as a result of that, we just tend to tell people a little bit goes a long way. So you can have those foods, but just be very mindful about how much you're putting in your body. And then number three, the red light category contains predominantly animal-based foods because these are what the research shows induces insulin resistance most effectively. This includes red meat, white meat, eggs, fish, shellfish, poultry, as well as uh, oils of any kind, so the oils include olive oil, they include coconut oil, they include MCT oil, and I'll be perfectly honest when I say this: there is um, there's now a resurgence in the medical literature about the fact that you know, ten years ago oils were good for you, and then all of a sudden now oils have been given a really bad name, and now there's a resurgence in the literature that actually that oils are actually not that bad for you, right? So. As the medical institution is learning more and more and more, it could be that oils are not necessarily as problematic as we once thought, right? But the point is that what we see in our individuals living with insulin resistance and type two diabetes is that the, um, paying attention to your oil intake can make a big difference, a huge difference in your weight and it can make a huge difference in your ability to control your blood glucose. So mm-hmm. that's why we put them in the red light category because they, they actually are very problematic.
0: Okay. okay. So to summarize, your green light foods are basically fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, eat ad libitum in their whole form. Yes. Your yellow light foods it's going to have your nuts and seeds, avocado, coconut, those types of things. You want right. to limit them. You can have them. It's it's not like you can't have them, but you don't mm-hmm. want to make that the central part of your diet. That's exactly right. And then the red light foods is all the animal products, all the processed foods oils, added fats, those kinds of things.
1: That's exactly right.
0: And I think I want to add to, you know, your comment about science and studies and things like that. One thing that I like to remind people to look at. So when we see like a resurgence right now, it's olive oil, right? Like the olive oil is like, okay, you can have olive oil. Pay attention to what they're studying, because a lot of the things that are coming out recently is olive oil with heart disease. Well, maybe that's a little bit of a different mechanism than how oils affect insulin resistance. So it's not like olive oil is back, just have it, whatever. It, it Depending on what you're susceptible to and what you suffer from, it may not really be a good choice for you. Exactly and right. just like Cyrus was saying, You know, when it comes to weight, I definitely have some feelings about them. That's the next question I had for you as well. But oil is the most calorie-dense substance that we have on the planet. 2,400, no, 4,000 calories per pound. So that is the most calorie-dense. 2,400 is the nuts and seeds. That one's sticking in my mind for nuts and seeds. But 4,000 calories per pound, um, that is pretty much a hundred percent, it's a hundred percent fat. And it's also all forms of oil are mixed. So it's not just, you know, maybe it's mostly polyunsaturated, whatever, but it has percentages of all the other types of fats. So it's really important to remember that probably for most people, we shouldn't have an oil rich diet Maybe for some types we can have some and add it here, there for flavor, whatever, but I don't think anybody's advocating just to go crazy and just have a diet that's very high in oil.
1: Exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: So let me go on to the question I alluded to, which is weight. So this mm-hmm. is something that's very important to me, especially because I wrote a book about intuitive eating, and you are saying that people should probably eat intuitively, eat when they're hungry, stop when they're satisfied, don't stuff yourself, even if you can't have green light foods. But one thing that you hear over and over and over again about diabetes is that diabetes improves with weight loss, which might be true. But what I heard you say earlier is that you can start to see results and pretty dramatic changes and improvements independent of weight loss before even any significant weight loss has occurred. So what are your thoughts on diabetes and weight loss and excess weight and and that topic?
1: Okay, I'm so glad you talked about this because this is literally one of my favorite subjects of all time. Uh, In the world of diabetes, there's this huge focus on if you just lose weight and achieve your ideal body weight, then your problems will be solved. So you know, in in with people with the type, sorry, with people with pre-diabetes, there's this national initiative called the DPP, the Diabetes Prevention Program, and one of the things that they try and accomplish is to get you to lose seven percent of your body weight, and by doing so, the chances of you getting rid of pre-diabetes goes dramatically up. Okay, uh, there's some research actually out of England that shows that if you adopt this thing called the Newcastle diet, then you can actually significantly reduce your calorie intake. Basically cut your calories, lose weight, and diabetes tends to go away. I'm not going to argue with any of that. That is a true statement. But what, I, what, what you're saying and what I'm saying is that it's not necessary. There was a, there's a, one of the greatest papers that was ever written about this subject What happened in 1979, written by a guy named James W. Anderson and his colleague, Kylene Ward. And they published a paper in which they took 20 people living with insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes. So these are people living with type 2 diabetes, that have been using insulin for at least one year. And they took these individuals and they transitioned them from their current low carbohydrate diet to a, what he referred to as a high carbohydrate, high fiber diet, which is exactly what we're describing. Okay, and he put these people on there on his low fat plant-based whole food diet. And he wanted to see what was gonna happen to their blood glucose values and to their insulin needs. But he told them one thing. He said, you are not allowed to lose a single pound inside of the study. If you do, I will kick you out of the study. So he literally forced his individuals to have to eat more food and eat more food and eat more food. What was different was that they were just eating low-fat, plant-based, whole foods, and they weren't eating their traditional low-carbohydrate diet. So he started feeding people this diet, and he maintained their body weight and made sure they weren't losing any pounds. He got 10 out of his 20 individuals living with type two diabetes who have been injecting insulin to get off of insulin altogether, 100% free of insulin. Guess how much time it took for those individuals to get off of insulin entirely. What's your guess? Maybe you know the answer.
0: Six months.
1: Six months, okay. That's what I originally thought when I read the paper. The answer is 16 days. It took 16 days. Basically it took the better part of two weeks For people to number one, not lose a single pound, but number two, change the biology of their liver and muscle to become more insulin sensitive. And as a result of doing that, they were able to discontinue their use of insulin altogether. That is phenomenal research.
0: And that is the power of food. I mean, that's what I tell people all the time: is it's the food. So Especially for people that might come from a dieting background, they may have a little PTSD about eating these like measly little portions, feeling hungry all the time, or having some issues around body image. Focus more on your well being, focus on how you're feeling, focus on eating these foods that are literally life saving and health promoting instead of your weight. Because as you can see, these changes can occur very rapidly. And what I love the mm-hmm. most about that study. Is that a lot of the participants in the study were physically uncomfortable? They were like, please, absolutely, please don't keep making us eat so much. We're I know. really, really full. <laughs> which, which is why eating a whole food plant-based diet that's low in fat without oils, for a lot of people leads to effortless weight loss, which is not necessarily what I'm promoting. I'm not saying people need to lose weight necessarily, but when it happens, it usually happens in this effortless way that's not even like, you're not trying to do it. You're not trying to restrict your calories or restrict your portions. You're eating abundantly. You're eating deliciously. You're eating foods that make you feel good. So what I recommend to people is focus on that feeling instead of the number on the scale.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Let me put it this way. The number on the scale matters. I'm You and I are not saying it's okay to be 20, 30, 40, 50 pounds overweight. That's not a true statement. We want you to achieve your ideal body weight. That is a true thing. But even before you achieve your ideal body weight, you can see dramatic changes in your insulin sensitivity just by manipulating the quality of the food that you put into your body and the type of food that you put into your body. And so if you can migrate over to a plant-rich diet that just happens to be low in fat and very high in fiber, as a result of doing that, you don't have to lose weight first in order to see dramatic improvements in your glucose responsiveness. All you have to do is m- start eating that food. And as a result of that, the biology of your liver and muscle are going to change in your favor and weight loss will happen. It'll just happen over the course of time, but you're going to see better numbers on your blood glucose meter and that'll happen much quicker.
0: That's beautiful. I love it. We, we spent a lot of time on the basics because I really want my listeners to really understand what diabetes is, what insulin resistance is, and how they can actually start to reverse this insulin resistance. So I think it's really important. In your book, you also have further steps that people can take once they've really gotten the food down, they can go on and add maybe some intermittent fasting, and also start moving their bodies. Can you just talk really quickly about intermittent fasting, what it is, and why it's important for people that might suffer from insulin resistance?
1: Absolutely, so intermittent fasting is one of my absolute favorite techniques. I I used to study it when I was back in graduate school for five years, and uh, since that time, it's just gotten more and more and more popular. Uh, I remember talking to my colleagues at the time when I was going to school, and um, I turned to them and I was like, hey guys, Intermittent fasting, calorie restriction, this stuff is pure gold, like unbelievably powerful. I just don't think it's going to catch on. I don't think that the general public is going to want to hear this message to eat less food. It's not its not what people are going to actually act on. Boy, was I wrong. I had no idea how wrong I was going to be. It turns out that intermittent fasting is arguably potentially more more popular than the ketogenic diet. But even, I don't know how to measure that, but the idea is that it's an extremely um, powerful method and it's become very popular in our world today, and that's a good thing. So um, intermittent fasting is basically a simple way that you can manipulate the timing of of your food intake. And by doing so, you can improve your glucose metabolism, you can improve your cardiovascular health, you can improve the function of your brain. And you can decrease your risk for uh, the development of precancerous cells simply by managing or by manipulating the timing at which you put food into your mouth. Now, human beings are sort of used to eating a breakfast and then a few hours later a lunch and then a few hours later and a dinner, and um, and and that's okay. But what the research world has actually found is that when you invoke in uh, calorie restriction, in in other words, when you restrict your calorie intake that is the only known method to actually add time on this planet okay it's so it's called calorie restriction without malnutrition and it's considered the most powerful and and truth be told the only way to increase your longevity and so the question is do do you have to restrict your calories in order to get these benefits do you have to restrict your calories in order to reduce your risk for chronic disease and live a longer life and the answer is Yes, you do, but rather than me telling you that you have to make every meal a little bit smaller and be hungry all the time, what you can do instead to mimic calorie restriction is just change the timing of which you eat food. So if on a daily basis, you were to create, create a, uh, an eight hour eating window and a 16 hour fasting window, then you can mimic a lot of the effects of calorie restriction. So that's called a 16-8 intermittent fast. So what that means is that you literally are going to skip either your breakfast or your dinner, and you're going to basically, uh, you know, eliminate one of those meals and just fast during that period and bracket it with your sleep so that you're getting credit for the time that you're sleeping plus either your dinner or your breakfast. And as a result of doing that, you create a 16-hour window where you're not eating any food. And then in the subsequent eight-hour window, that's when you do get to eat food. And by doing that on a daily basis, many of the effects of calorie restriction can be replicated and it's pretty darn powerful. Um, so as far as diabetes is concerned, if you're increasing your fasting window to about 16 hours on a daily basis, you can get tremendous benefits. Your blood glucose can get flatlined, your insulin use can go down, um, your need for oral medications can go down, and your ability to lose weight goes up. And all of those are good things. Mm-hmm. So um, we're huge fans of intermittent fasting. And whether you do a 16-8 like I just described, or you do a, a once per week 24-hour intermittent fast, or any variation thereof, most of the intermittent fasting techniques are going to lead to improved health and it's going to be like another tool, bo- another tool in your toolbox that's going to in- continue to improve your diabetes health.
0: Yeah, I, I love talking about intermittent fasting and I work with clients as well and I teach intermittent fasting. And I find that a lot of people, even just thinking about starting with a 12-hour overnight fast, stop eating you know, dinner at 7 and then don't eat again until 7 or 8 the next morning. That's a a good place to start for a lot of people because a lot of Americans snack all night long, right up until bedtime. You know, you have your popcorn and your candy or whatever when you're watching TV, you don't go to bed till 11 or midnight, you get up and then you have your breakfast with your coffee at 7 or 8 a.m. So even just starting to stop earlier, right after dinner, close the kitchen, brush your teeth. And don't eat again till the next morning is a Mm -hmm. good place for a lot of people to start to try to practice because we don't think of sleeping as fasting, but we are fasting because we're not eating while we're sleeping. So we take advantage of those sleep hours to add to that fasting window and it can have a lot of benefits. The studies with breast cancer too and decreasing our risk of breast cancer and increasing breast cancer survivors, um, percentage of breast cancer survivors with intermittent fasting. I think that's all great stuff too.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You you got, yeah. Use your sleep to your advantage because um, you you are fasting when you're sleeping. It's like the easiest form of fasting that you'll ever do, but it definitely counts towards your fasting window. So absolutely use it.
0: Really quick on exercise. I think, and what I've found in my experience with diabetics and people that are suffering from insulin resistance is Mm -hmm. that it is just a really great way to improve your insulin sensitivity. So talk a little bit about exercise and how you recommend that people start integrating exercise if they're coming from a sedentary lifestyle into managing their insulin resistance, reversing their insulin resistance with physical activity.
1: Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, in this world of nutrition, we talk about diet and, you know, diet and carbohydrate and fat and plants and fiber. And, you know, we sometimes don't give exercise the credit that it's due. Exercise is one of the most powerful things that you can possibly do to improve your insulin sensitivity and reverse insulin resistance. No questions asked. Um, so what we like to tell people to do is to basically move your body for 30 minutes per day at the minimum. Okay. It's very simple prescription, move your body for 30 minutes per day and do that six days per week. Okay. And when you move your body, what I want you to focus on is moving at a, at a, fast enough rate, or doing enough exercise, or doing enough movement, such that it literally becomes hard to talk. That's all I care about, okay? So if I were to pick up the phone and I were to call you while you were in the middle of your walk, or while you were doing push-ups, and I were to try and have a conversation with you, you would hopefully find it challenging to talk to me and say, hey, sir, I can't do this right now, let me talk to you later, okay? So that's number one. Number two, if you can sing a song, you're not working hard enough, okay? Just think of your favorite Whitney Houston song once you try and sing that and if you can then you're not working hard enough Otherwise, you know work to a point where you can't really, you know Sing properly and when you do that, then you know that you're working at a at a decent enough pace. So if you literally just do that um, You will likely find that your blood glucose becomes more controllable that you are you could even start to lose weight a little bit quicker uh, that your need for insulin and or oral medication goes down and your energy levels are actually going to go up. Okay, There's a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm, I'm too tired to exercise. I don't have enough energy to exercise. And, and the irony of the situation is that the more you exercise, the less tired you will become. Mm-hmm. It's counterintuitive. You think, oh, well, it takes a lot of energy to exercise. And the answer is, yeah, it does take energy to exercise, but it's also very energizing. And as a result of that, the more that you move your body, the more energy you're going to have and the easier it's going to be for you to use your body the next time. Mm-hmm.
0: Again, yeah, very counterintuitive there, right? You think, oh, I'm tired. It's going to make me more tired, but it just makes you feel great. And mm-hmm. as a lifestyle medicine physician, I will say that exercise is just one of those things that there's just, there's nothing bad about it. Exercise helps for so many things, increases longevity as well, decreases chronic disease. Mm-hmm. It's going to improve your insulin sensitivity. So exercise is definitely one of those things to think about. Integrating into your regimen. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the most common mistake that a person makes when they're adopting the mastering diabetes approach? What do you see that people do over and over again that might be a common mistake that they make?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I would say a common mistake is that, uh, like we talked about earlier, people go into it sometimes with like a, with, with like a, a partially closed mind where they're they're saying to themselves like, okay, I'll make these changes, but I'm still scared. I'm still scared. I'm still scared. And they let the fear of eating carbohydrate rich food take over the food that actually goes on their plate. So what I would like, you know, one of the things that I recommend for people to do is I say, Hey, listen, right now sometimes you like mental blocks can get in the way of you actually achieving the success that I know you're capable of. So for, you know, for the first 30 days as you're really changing your breakfast and your lunch and dinner, I want you to do everything in your power to relax, your preconceived notions about what you think is gonna happen, okay? Don't let your head block this process. This There's a phenomenal biological symphony that's about to be unleashed inside of your body. Don't let your head get in the way of that, okay? And so when people do that, then all of a sudden they're like, okay, cool, let me just relax it, let me relax it, and then all of a sudden they start to see the magic unfold,
0: mm-hmm. okay?
1: That would be my number one thing. There's also a lot of uh, pre-programming that has happened over the course of time. As you read, you know, you watched Tell programs on television and you read books about low carbohydrate nutrition and you go on the internet and you see people posting pictures of eating meat and their ketogenic diet right and this stuff can psychologically pre-program you to believe that's the, right thing, that's the right thing that's the right thing that's the right thing that's the right thing and so if you're seeing that on one hand and then you're trying to change your diet and you're constantly in tension between the two of these worlds what I would recommend doing is try to try to not pay attention to the low carbohydrate message as much literally put it away put it away temporarily and just really focus on doing this. Give me your full commitment. And when you fully commit to something, you're actually going to put it into play the way that we describe. And by doing so, the chances of you seeing success go way up. Mm
0: -hmm. So you have to learn to block and get tunnel vision. This is a time when tunnel vision would actually help you (laughs) to really stay. And I'll say too, that not just what you hear on TV and programs and things like that, but family members, because there's well-meaning family members that'll see what you're doing. And they're like, what you're doing, what that person's Mm -hmm. crazy. You know, you shouldn't do that. That's not good for your diabetes. And this happens in my family too, with a family member that I've been trying for years to get him on this path. And then as soon as he starts eating fruit, Another family member, stop eating fruit. You have diabetes. You know, you shouldn't be eating fruit. And mm-hmm. of course, that's hard in Panama when there's fruit year round. That's delicious. Especially so, some
1: of the, the best tropical fruit <laughs> on the planet.
0: Absolutely. So, okay. This has been so great, Cyrus. I know I kept you over time, but oh, oh, it's so, no, so much great stuff. I want to hear a little bit about you. So if you could tell me what personal habit you are most proud of, how did you develop it and how do you maintain it?
1: Okay. Most person, the personal habit that I'm most proud of, is my exercise regimen. Uh, ever since I was a little kid, since I was like, since I could walk, um, I was kind of a terror and I would just like, I would, I would run all over the place. I would throw balls. I would play soccer. I would buy my, my mom literally enrolled me in every sport she could possibly think of <laughs> just to make, make her life easier. And from a young age, I just recognized that I love moving my body over the course of time. What that's translated into is that, I take exercise seriously. Exercise is such an important aspect of my daily existence that when I don't get it, uh, the world feels weird to me. Okay, rest days are incredibly hard for me. I really, I have this like hyperactivity disorder and I love it, okay? So on a daily basis, I'm gonna go to the gym, I'm gonna go to a CrossFit, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pound myself into submission because I enjoy it, right? If that's not available to me, then I'm gonna go to the weight room and I'm gonna do my own thing. If that's not available to me, I'm gonna get on the road and I'm gonna go for a run. If that's not available to me, I'm gonna invent some silly workout where I'm just doing push-ups and pull-ups in my own house, and I'm gonna push myself to the limits, right? That's something that actually has like fundamentally not only improved my insulin sensitivity and my diabetes health, for sure, no question. But it's actually changed the way that I think. It's changed. Um, it's it's allowed me to push through a lot of mental barriers that I thought existed, not only on my ability to move my body, but just in life. And a lot of the times when I when I see myself sort of, you know, talking myself out of a particular situation, I go into my exercise brain and I say, you know what? It's not a question of if you can do it. It's a question of if you're willing to put in the effort to do it if you're willing to do it, it will happen. And as a result of that, I've been able to get stronger and faster and you know, better at exercise, but I've also become stronger, faster, and better, I think, at life in general. And it's something that I absolutely love about my own personal um, you know, daily habits.
0: Wow. I love that. Well, and you don't know this, but I can attest to your gym habits because I've been at three conferences with you. And I'm one of those people that's at the gym and I have seen you there every single time. (laughs) So you're one of those regular gym people. And I love going to these conferences. One of the things I love the most is getting to the gym and there's no machines available.
1: Right. Because everybody
0: that's there really integrates that into their lifestyle. And you can tell people are happy. People are energetic. They, they have this glowing health about them and it's just amazing to be around people like that. So
1: I'm glad you're also infected with the, same, with the same sickness, I'll call it.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. So um, let's talk about how listeners can connect with you. How can they get to be part of your program? Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: For sure. Um, and thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Um, if you want to learn more about the Mastering Diabetes approach or the Mastering Diabetes method, um, I'd recommend a number of things. Number one, first and foremost, go to our website, masteringdiabetes.org. And, um, start reading there. We have a blog. We have plenty of information on there that gives you the science of insulin resistance. It shows you testimonials. We got recipes, we got a podcast, just go immerse yourself in that world. Cause there's a lot to be learned. Number two, we just wrote a book, just like you had mentioned. Um, the name of the book is mastering diabetes. Surprise, surprise. The book is available starting on February 18th, 2020. And, um, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on Barnes and Noble. You can buy it at your local bookstore. Uh, this book is literally a manifesto. It tells you everything you ever wanted to know, and you pick it up for I don't know what is it twenty bucks, something like that, and it can literally change your life. Um, I highly recommend getting this book wherever you can get your hands on it. We also have an audio book. There's also a Kindle version, um, but immerse yourself in this in this um, in this world. And my my the first thing I would say is before you make any changes to your lifestyle, please please please. Learn the science. If you learn the science and you understand it inside and out, then when you go to make your lifestyle changes, it's going to become easier. If you just say, oh, okay, like I, I listened to a little bit of this or I read like one tiny piece of this chapter and then I tried to make changes to my lifestyle, I can tell you from experience, it may not stick. Okay. Once you learn the biology and you really understand it fundamentally, it's going to make your transition that much simpler, and it's going to, you're going to have longevity. You're going to have staying power. Okay, okay? Um, so you know, go to our website, purchase the book, really get immersed in this world, and um, if it changes your life, send us an email. We you can find us at team at masteringdiabetes Send us an email, ask us any questions, um, and uh, you know, tell us how your lifestyle is evolving, uh, and we want to hear it the last thing as I will say is that we do have a coaching program. It's an online coaching program that you can participate in from wherever you are on the planet. And if you go to our website, you can click on, I think it's plans and in the top menu, and you can learn more about many different types of coaching that we have for you. Um, you know, whether you want to do it yourself, whether you want the guidance of, uh, you know, a coach in a large group setting, whether you want the guidance of a coach in a small group setting, whether you want the guidance of a coach one-on-one, all of those options are available. And our goal is to basically make this information uh, practical, something that you can act on and something that's truly going to change your life from the inside out. So if you're interested, you want to learn more and you really feel like now is the time, um, this is your opportunity and uh, I would love to see you on the inside.
0: That's great. Yeah. And y'all's website is just beautiful. I love it. It's such a pretty website, really easy on the eyes, easy to navigate. The book, like I said, phenomenal, so comprehensive. So many questions can be answered from that book. And there's gonna be people that are go-getters. They can go out, they can read the book, they can apply it, they can make changes. And there are some people, like you were referring to before, they may have more fear. They may, may not be ready to do it by themselves. And so they may benefit from either one-on-one or small group coaching or large group coaching so that they have immediately a community to support them, other people that they can reach out to, experienced, knowledgeable coaches that have lots of knowledge in this area. So Mm -hmm. definitely, if you're thinking about it, I I just really encourage you to look into this, get the book, it's available for pre-order now, Go ahead and pre-order it so that it gets shipped to you right when it's released Mm -hmm. and look at the website. You guys are also active on social media, Instagram, are you on Facebook as well?
1: Yeah, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're all over the place. You can't escape us.
0: You (laughs) can't escape. (laughs) Mastering diabetes approaches everywhere. I hope you take over the world, I really do. I think that this is going (laughs) to change so many people's lives for the better. It's It's just wonderful. So many questions that I could have asked in addition to this, but I think that this is a great start, Cyrus. Thank you so much for your time. Before you leave, can you leave my listeners with a call to action for the week? What is one thing that they can do this week that is going to improve their health and their lives?
1: Okay. This is a great, great question. Here's what you can do. You can get started. I want you to eat three fruits a day starting today. You can do it.
0: All right. Three fruits a day.
1: Three fruits a day, and if you already are eating three fruits a day, then add three more fruits to your day, okay? Fruits have been getting a really bad name over the course of time. People say fruit equals sugar. It's going to make you fat. It's going to increase your cholesterol. Please don't believe that information. Um, Add fruits to your diet. Just find your favorite fruits, whatever they are. Add three servings per day, and it's going to dramatically improve your health, and over the course of time, as you continue to integrate more and more and more, it's only going to get better.
0: I love it. Not only is it simple, but it's very pleasant, too. Eating fruit is delicious. So I love that call to action. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Cyrus, for being on the show today. I appreciate you so much, and I hope that you have a plantastic day.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Yami. I really appreciate it.
0: I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day.